Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey, it's Arlene Bynan filling in for Alex Pearson on On Point. Today on the podcast, Cadillac Fairview, quietly collecting the images of 5 million shoppers across the country. Is that a violation of your rights? We speak to the Canadian Civil Liberties Association's Michael Bryant to find out why, how, and how we can stop it. Then a look at the incredible race going south of the border, this election campaign. Will we know the results on election night? There is so much tension. What states are going to be a giveaway? What are the big signs? And a street gang going by the name Eglinton West Crips has been dismantled by the Toronto police. We'll get some insight into what that takedown looked like right from the inside. Let's get talking. You're listening to On Point on Global News Radio. Happy Friday. I'm Arlene Bynan here for Alex Pearson. And wow, what a strange Friday it is. I mean, we got a whole bunch of things coming together. It is the eve before Halloween. It is the weekend that the clocks go back, which also kind of freaks us out, puts us off, as we're told. And then we have other stuff that's kind of shifting all the earth beneath our feet. So what? A, and it's cold. So it's we've got this feeling that it's anything could happen. I, I, I think it's almost kind of like a, a movie, you know, when they add all the stuff together and we hope that there's a happy ending to this movie. I was struck still today for the millionth time by just how much this virus is affecting our lives. And we're hanging on to every bit of news, trying to figure out where do we go? What do we do? What are our risks? There are some who say they're being overblown. And then we hear about these high areas where people are testing at a a bigger percentage. And then we hear about the economic destruction of this. And, you know, we all knew this, didn't we? We we talked about it when it was happening and we, we went projecting into the future and said, you know, it's not just going to be the the virus. It's not just going to be the medical aspect of it. There's going to be mental aspects. And today, it, there was a, a, another example of this. Now, it's in the city of Toronto in the Danforth, but the same thing is happening in the city of Hamilton, my hometown, may I say, <laughs> and I had the hammer, and, and London, everywhere. It is every town, village, everything in Ontario, Canada, and if we're really honest, around the world. But I was struck by just the Danforth, because the whole country at, at one point was just rallying for all these businesses on the Danforth after that terrible shooting and the and the destructions and the deaths and you think of all the the way that they fought back in the business improvement area they were just so powerful and then we hear the stories of two really landmark restaurants in the Danforth and they say they're they're closing down it is not sustainable the way it is and that comment 
struck me. Today, we're going to kind of pull it back into a bigger context and look at just how many other businesses might be the same. There are people out there hanging on by their fingernails. There are, are people who are, and then I was struck also reading stories today of people who'd lost their jobs and they were doing fine. They were raising a couple of kids or and they were paying their bills, they were paying their rent, and now people are wondering, is somebody going to take my car away from me, and I'm going to have to go and live in a shelter or whatever. I mean, this is very real stuff, and they were they were working for a very long time in a lot of the service industry. So it is a frightening situation, you know, as we're close to Halloween. It's a fr- it is a frightening situation economically. And also, what else is going to happen? Is it, there is a feeling we don't know. We're into the second wave and it's it's not an easy go. Is there going to be a third wave? You know, if, if it mirrors the Spanish flu, there was a third wave. And we think with all our technology and everything, I, I know so many of us feel so inoculated which, from that, inoculated from that disaster because we have been as a human race, and we're not now. We have Teresa Tam. We're going to talk about it, as I know Alex does every night, a real comprehensive look at uh, how COVID is making the news, and we'll do that in just a few moments. But we've got Teresa Tam saying you've got to shut out your contacts, 25% of your contacts. Well, that's kind of okay for me. I, you know, I kind of hunker down on this thing. But you know, who is she aiming that and how is it, it going to help things? And we had these restrictions and then there's some conflicting reporting that some of those restrictions aren't working. And then Doug Ford is constituency office with a little bit of an outbreak, isn't it? Amazing when this hits the political sphere. There we go. And we see, you know, that businesses, I know that there was a great kickback on Twitter, people saying, shut it down, Doug, shut down all the constituency offices, because there's a, a lot of pushback from businesses who say we want to we want to open up, we don't want to give up. And I know some of them are getting together, Paramount Foods saying, come on, let's open up the restaurants, the data doesn't support it. And are we getting enough of that data? That's a, that's another big part of it. So we're going to look at that whole kind of uneasy feeling. And there is no peaceful, uneasy feeling. It's just an uneasy feeling, as the song says. And and again, like, look at everything that's happening. We got Halloween. It's going to be different. People are going to be using tongs for chips and stuff to hang it out. And we also have when the clocks go back, and it makes us kind of go a little bit crazy, too. And I, I think I just heard, too, in our a weather forecast there that we're going to have a, a moon. So I'm sure there will be a lot of lunatics out on this weekend as we bring it all together. We're also going to look today at another thing that's on everybody's mind. And let's face it, this is a moment when we think about the United States of America. We we have such a relationship with them. We follow their news. We wonder whether or not they've infected our culture. I mean, they were the good old days. Now we're watching what could be a a big political unrest after an election campaign. You know, I was I was reading today about some of the newsrooms that are covering these things. I think it was Reuters was saying, you know, we we know how to do this. We send our reporters into areas and we know how to look for damage in election. We know how to give them gas masks and all this. We have never done this before in the United States of America. And and prepare for this civil unrest. Look at how close we are. We can practically yell and they can hear us. And we've got the border. 
We've got a long relationship. We share intelligence. And now we're going to watch their election. And, and tonight we're going to do a little bit of a primer. Because it used to be when you sat down, certainly as a Canadian, you watched the uh, U.S. election campaign, all the big fancy coverage and, you know, the way they do it on television. And they spend all that money on graphics and all the booming voices and great people all over the place, iconic people reporting on what looks like history, leader of the free world. And now we're going to be watching it, not just as sit-down political entertainment. Now we're watching it. We have a lot of skin in the game. We do. We have the Keystone XL. We've got, and we'll talk about it later, I mean, Joe Biden may be a better fit politically with this prime minister, but he's now in the business of pipelines, so he's got that to worry about. We've got tariffs. Could they get worth? Because look at what Donald Trump did. He was supposed to be, you know, conservatives are not supposed to be tariff people. They used not to be tariff people, but now they're defined by Donald Trump. And we are about to see what the American people feel about that. It's also caused a a lot of discussion here. Has it crept in politically? If he wins another four years, well... There's no way we're not going to see even more of that influence. Politicians and political campaigns follow what wins. And if there's a blowout the other way for Joe Biden, then that may infiltrate here as well. Already we're seeing other countries around the world reach out to Joe Biden, including the UK. I mean, they were tied around the waist with the United States for a while. We're reading all those stories, the new a new type of conservative leader, and now they got to hedge their bets and, and reach out. You turn in the news, COVID, 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 COVID. If you get it, you're going to get better, and then you're going to be immune, and it's a whole thing, and it goes away. Estimates are, if we'd acted responsibly, there'd be 160,000 fewer dead than there are today. Because of COVID-19, we're now past the 9 million mark. The people infected. I'm Arlene Bonin for Alex Pearson. Welcome back. America at the crossroads. And we are days away from a historic election in the United States, bombarded with all this information. Who's voting? How tough is it? Who's lining up? What do the polls say? What do the national polls say? What do the state polls say? And how do they compare to what happened before? Wasn't Hillary ahead last year? All those things that we're thinking about. Well, we're going to give you a little bit of a primer and a snapshot of what is happening in that election. I would like to welcome John Laboutlier, former Republican congressman and co-host of Revolution, the podcast, which is... My podcast as well. He is my co-host. We do it together. And I also want to say, John, welcome. You and I started on this radio station, and it's great to have you to talk about the election tonight. Well, thank you, Arlene. I love being back on 640. I loved being on with you many, many years ago. And might have been the first station I had ever been a guest on in Canada. It's an honor from New York to be sharing the airwaves with so many wonderful Neighbors to our north, who um, I think the world of. So, 
Well, we're all watching. Three days away, so let's get Yeah, we're all watching the election, and I'll tell our listeners, John and I, we do this podcast here, we've been doing it ever since the last election, and we we are kind of addicted to this whole political thing, and we're addicted to the polls, and we're watching this extremely, extremely carefully. All right, John, where are we right now? What is your assessment with all your experience on what the polls are saying? We have seen a steady a steady lead for Joe Biden. There has been a lead, if we are truly honest, since the moment he said he was going to run. But everybody's nervous, saying Hillary was ahead in the last election. How are you looking at it? And she was, you know, and she was ahead the whole time. Obviously, there was the James Comey reopening of the Mm -hmm. email investigation when Hillary was 12 points ahead with 12 days to go, actually. And she averaged from that day on losing one point a day. And it became razor thin. She did win the popular vote, of course, which means nothing. But she did win it. And the polling showed her ahead. So the polling was right on the national level. On the state level, it wasn't that off because it was a very close race. As we said to each other on other shows and on our Mm -hmm. podcast, uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin was decided by a total of 77,000 votes which is a tiny fraction of all the votes that were cast. And polls cannot be that accurate. They have a margin of error, usually two to three points. And that certainly fell within that margin of error. Anyway, that was four years ago. And what about now? This is is a different year, different candidate, different environment. Trump's president. And Trump is his biggest uh, enemy because he has made the campaign about him. When we go back to 2016, it was about Hillary, and and Comey made it about Hillary, and Hillary helped it too. And this time, it's all about Trump, and I don't think that's helping Trump. Uh, it's not to say that Trump doesn't have a lot of passionate support. Obviously, he does, but the passion in this race, and I I use this mm-hmm. formula all the time: the passion differential will decide. Who's going to win an election? Which side has more passion? How do we and know? How, year, what's it, the criteria? What do we know? Do we know who's passionate right now? We do. Well, both sides are very passionate. The turnout proves it. But uh, the bigger passion this year is anti-Trumpism. There's more, there are more anti-Trumpers than there are pro-Trumpers. And they have got a candidate. They may not be madly in love with Joe Biden, but there's no... Uh, venom against mm-hmm. Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. There is dripping venom against Donald Trump. And I think that's in the big picture. And you can see it. We've been seeing it since he got elected. In 2017, there were two special uh, governor's elections that year, and the uh, uh, Republicans, the Trumpers, got soundly defeated, and a special Senate election in, of all places, Alabama, that the Democrat won. 2018, our midterm elections, uh, biggest Democratic popular vote majority in history, nine million more people voted for the Democrats. Yeah, so that's the, the passion. But are we seeing that in these polls? And because the pollsters yeah. are a little bit on trial here and they're being really careful. Well, first of all, you're seeing it on the news every night when you turn on the TV and there's people two weeks before an election mm-hmm. standing in line for five mm-hmm. hours to vote. There's your passion. And they are they they're 
I think a majority of the ones who have voted early are so keen on this election that they want to make sure their vote gets counted. Now, I just had texted you before I came mm-hmm. on that Target Smart, which is a company that compiles the data of who has voted so far. And as of tonight, I think it's 85 million people have voted uh, nationwide. Wow. And this thing that this guy, the head of Target Smart, just said an hour ago really stuck with me. It's, and I've heard it a, a week ago, and it's more now. And 27% of the people who have voted so far are voters who did not vote four years ago. They voted in 2012, they skipped 2016, and now they're back voting. And they've obviously voted early. And they are disproportionately Hispanic, Black, and Asian. And uh, 2 million of them are over 65. Now, all those categories are in Biden's wheelhouse. Black, Hispanic, Asian. By the way, we have, he has running mate that is part Black, part Asian in Kamala Harris. And the senior citizen vote, we know, has flipped against Trump nationally because of the, by yeah, because of the seven virus. points. Yep. So, so, I mean, that just that, I, and I've thought this all along, that there was a huge group of voters going back to 2016 who voted for Obama twice, and then they didn't dig Hillary. They didn't like Trump. So they figured, ah, Hillary's going to win anyway. I don't need to vote. And they didn't vote. And then, boom, Trump wins that night. And ever since then, they've, those, these voters have regretted not voting. So they voted in the, those midterms I talked about, special elections. They have voted. But this is the first chance they have to express their opinion of Donald Trump. And I think and they're doing it the and they're lining up and we're watching voting suppression. Uh, we're, we're also watching, you know, news teams outfit themselves in masks and and gas masks in case they get tear gas. I mean, it's really hard to shake your head and believe this is America. I'm wondering if you could help us. We don't have a lot of time left, but, you know, so many people, especially here in, in Canada, we're saying, OK, what are we watching here? We've got the states. We know those swing states that Donald Tunt just kind of dripped and tripped over there. What are what should be the states that tell us things? I mean, how powerful one will be begin with Pennsylvania? What has to happen in Pennsylvania for these candidates? Well, they both really need to win it. Uh, they both can be elected president without winning it. But if you win it, you're in great shape. It's 20 electoral votes. Trump, um, if, if even if Trump loses Michigan and Wisconsin, and he's trailing there by more than he is in Pennsylvania, but if he loses both of them, but he wins Pennsylvania and everything else stays the same, he's, he gets reelected. Mm. However, if he loses Pennsylvania and those other two, then he's, he's out no matter what happens. Um, Biden has many states, and, and he can make up for a loss in Pennsylvania if he were to win in North Carolina where he's ahead. He blows it out if he wins in Ohio, which is solid Republican, but he's competitive then. He was in Iowa today because there's a chance he could win Iowa, which also is a huge blow to Trump. There are many Trump states where Trump is trailing. There are no Biden-Hillary states where Biden is trailing. None. He's ahead in all of them. And he's leading in almost all the Trump states. I mean, that's the thing about Biden. 
he's like you introduced me and the polling. He's Biden's been ahead of Trump since April mm-hmm. 2019, virtually everywhere. And that is why Trump has gone bananas against Biden, trying to call him another Hillary, crooked Biden, the Biden crime mm-hmm. family, Cena, hey, uh, get Ukraine to launch an investigation. He has flailed around for a year and a half trying to get at a way to chip away at Biden, and he hasn't found it, and it's three days, and he's not going to find it. Are you going to make a prediction, John? People are so curious. I will. I'll tell you right okay. now. Right. I've said this to you on our <laughs> podcast you have? and on <laughs> other shows. Okay. The <laughs> president's approval rating, historically, mm-hmm. at the end of a campaign, is the number he will get in the general elections. Donald Trump's at 43% approval ratings. He will get, on Tuesday, when it's all added up, he'll get either mm-hmm. 43 or 44%, uh, round it off a little bit, mm-hmm. of the popular vote, which means in a two-way race, Biden is going to get almost 10 points more. And that's a blowout, a landslide in the popular vote. And with a popular vote that big, it is impossible for Donald Trump to win in the Electoral College. And I think, in the end, Biden will be north of 330, maybe north of 350 electoral votes. So it's on you, tape, courtesy it's on tape. 640 yeah. in Toronto and Arlene <laughs> Biden, and we'll play it back. But I think that's where we're at. All right. Uh, we're, a lot of people nervous, a lot of people nervous for believing the polls, but... Heck, and look, there's a lot at stake. There's a lot at stake for Canada, depending on who is president. John LeBoutlier, former Republican congressman, co-host of Revolution, the podcast, which is also co-hosted by yours truly. Thank you, John. And I know we will be talking. Thanks, Skyly. Uh, Carolyn, talk to you after the election. I'm going to ask you who owns your picture and who has it, and how did they get it, and what are they going to do with it? It's one of the things that we have to ask ourselves, whether it's online, whether we're walking, whether we're in a store, we have to ask ourselves who is taking our image, and never mind who's taking our data and our information online, (laughs) who's selling it, who's tracking us, and all these things. It certainly is a time where we talk about what we have a right to keep to ourselves and what we have a right to let others use. And joining us is Michael Bryant, Executive Director of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Hi, Michael. Welcome. Hi. Great to be here. Great, uh, great opening. You've really captured what the issue is all about. It's, it is a frightening time. And we really wanted to talk to you tonight as we discuss this story that kind of encapsulates it. We've got Cadillac Fairview, and they were secretly collecting images of shoppers all across our country. And it really is a sign of what we fear the most, that there are people taking our picture, using it for their own gain, perhaps, and maybe giving it to others, and it could affect our future. Michael, how important is this? It's very important, and I I hope people who are skeptical about the importance of this issue realize that um, uh, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, where I work, we we are not for uh, conspiracy theories at all. Uh, We base our work on evidence, and and we take that evidence to court, and we're 
pretty serious about our facts and what the law is. And I can tell you that this is spooky because uh, what uh, these malls are doing uh, is it's the equivalent of taking your fingerprint. It really is. It's like taking your fingerprint unbeknownst to you secretly and uh, how would you feel about that? I'm, I'm betting you, you're not feeling good about being fingerprinted, but that's, that's what facial recognition technology is. It takes a facial fingerprint of you and your neighbors and your children mm. and, your, you know, and your grandparents, and it keeps that, uh, those fingerprints it's called biometric data, but it doesn't matter what it's called. It's a, it's a fingerprint. They keep it and they use it for right now, whatever mm. they want. And, and, and that means they have private personal information about us that can be used for commercial purposes or might be accessed by police in a way uh, that runs afoul uh, of the normal rules that apply to evidence and policing. So that that is spooky stuff. And um, the bottom line is, I think that we think at CCLA that there should be in Canada a moratorium on all facial recognition technology until we've got some laws in place to deal with this new technology that's being used uh, in a way that we're not even sure... Um, uh, we're not even sure how, where, when, and what it's being used for, which is why we need to shut it down just for a bit until uh, the lawmakers can get ahead of the technology. And we can, yeah, and we can catch up with it. You know, it just kind of hit everybody over the head when this happened. And then, you know, we find out it was part of an investigation by Alberta, federal, and B.C. privacy commissioners. Privacy commissioners pretty busy these days. But what do we do to stop this? I mean, I, I think it will really shock people that it was allowed in the first place. There's been a creep mm-hmm. behind the curtains, and it's been going on for some time. And now many people are realizing, as we look at you know the power of Facebook and we see all these fake accounts, places, people stealing your picture, that it's kind of like we've opened up Pandora's box, and I don't know if we can put everything back in there. Yeah, we can. We can. I, 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 uh, we, we just we need to get some rules in place, just like we have rules on fingerprinting. You know, like uh, they can't come in and fingerprint your kids at yeah. the school. Um, th- th- you know, there, there's a, there, there are laws around fingerprinting in our criminal code, and we just need some laws uh, on this. And you know, we need laws, generally speaking, as a as a subject. Privacy, our data privacy laws in Canada, are really old. And in Quebec, to their credit, they're modernizing their privacy laws as we speak. The European Union has done that. California and a few other states have done that. But in Canada, other than Quebec, nobody's doing it. And, you know, governments and politicians sometimes talk about it, sometimes. But it just has fallen down the list. And so really what we need to do is tell our politicians to protect us by passing laws in this area that are in the public interest. And uh, let's start out by saying that until we get some rules in place, you can't steal my identity, period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What would this look like? You know, how would we give consent for such a thing? And Do you have yeah. any idea of how it would yeah. roll out if we had control over this? 
Right. Well, uh, this is just it, is um, we, we need to uh, create, we, we, you know, we need, we need to have a technology that allows us to do with our privacy what we can do with um, uh, email subscriptions, you know. It used to be with an email subscription, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you couldn't stop the spam, and then it was either you unsubscribed to everything or nothing, whereas now you can say, look, I, I do want to get stuff on this, but I don't want to get stuff on that. And so similarly, we need to be able to um, – uh, we, we need to get the technology to work for us. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Get the technology to work for us as opposed to letting the technology work for um, companies that are using it for their profit um, in secret. And so in order to get it working in the public interest, uh, we need to get those laws and rules in place. And, and we need to turn to our politicians to do that. All right. You know, there may be those who say they want to use it for public good, like Mm -hmm. police forces. You just said, you know, they can't come in and fingerprint you unless they get a warrant or they get something written. And look at what we've just seen. I mean, there was the Golden State Killer who was found by tapping into people who were looking to see their history and their genealogy. And we just saw this in the case of the Jessup murder. And, you know, yes, we get we get some charges that are laid and we get some convictions, but this could be kind of the same thing. I mean, on the one hand, it could be used for good. On the other hand, we don't have our permission and it could be used in any way, even by the police. Right. And unlike DNA today, to use that example of um, science and technology coming together to do something that we couldn't do before, you know, uh, in terms of matching DNA uh, on a crime scene uh, versus um, the criminal defendant accused of the crime. Unlike DNA, which is not perfect, but um, has got a level of accuracy that we can that is mm-hmm. is reliable. It, facial recognition technology isn't quite where it needs to be, and so, for example, if you can believe it. Um, it's particularly inaccurate for people of color. Well, of all people that you don't want to discriminate mm-hmm. against, mm-hmm. Like, don't, don't discriminate against people of color. Um, now, that's not, I, I don't believe that's because the engineers are racist. It, it, mm-hmm. It's just the way that they were designed. Uh, they were just designed for white skin. Uh, it works better with Caucasian faces than not. So the first thing we need to do is make sure that whatever, you know, that, before we allow the technology to work for us, it needs to be working properly and not and not be inaccurate and discriminatory. And so that's number one. And then number two, well, we built, you know, it. other jurisdictions have done it. Like I said, in the European Union and in California and other states, they've figured out what the rules are and the laws are. And it kind of boils down to giving people more choice in how this information is being used, as opposed to right now having zero choice. All right, Michael Bryan, thank you for joining us. You have a great weekend, and enjoy your your booming 2020 where we're worried about all these things. Thank you. Yeah, okay. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Michael Bryan is Executive Director of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. It is amazing, isn't it? They might have your picture, and who are they going to give it to? What are they going to use it for? You say, I wasn't there. Somebody says, well, somebody who looked like you was there. 
Sounds like a crazy movie. It isn't. It is reality. We're going to talk about something that may have come as a little bit of shock. You know, we we have all these things to concern ourselves about. And there was a time we were so focused looking at guns and gangs and really over the last 10 years. Well, now we know that Toronto police and other forces have all got together and they've dismantled a violent street gang known as Eglinton West Crips. Joining us, Dave Perry, 640 Toronto crime expert and CEO of Investigative Solutions Network. Dave Perry, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Happy to be with you. All right. It's quite a strange name when it comes to a gang, isn't it? Eglinton West sounds like, you know, it could be um, the beginning of a grocery store or something. And then Crips. And we know what that means. What do we know about them? Well, we know that they've been around for quite some time and they're considered one of the more violent and more organized uh, street gangs in the GTA. And uh, obviously from what we saw through the, uh, the arrests, the number of people arrested, the number of criminal charges laid, you know, the amount of firearms and drugs and so on that were received, this is a significant blow to the street gang activity in the GTA, but uh, it also tells you just how, you know, how, how difficult the problem really is. You know, when we talk about crime and and what kind of a stain these people leave, this is not pleasant. Murder, attempted murder, human trafficking. How much of a network and how much of a a crime fixture are these gangs and this one in particular? Well, I would say that street gangs in general are the number one challenge for our public safety uh, here in Ontario and especially in the GTA. And... Um, you know, the, the impact of, of their activity is felt everywhere in the GTA. You know, we're starting to hear and see, you know, not just the shootings that are happening in the big city that are happening in Toronto, but are, are happening in smaller communities where they continue to expand and, and you know, try and profit off of, the, again, the, the drug trafficking, the gun trafficking, the human trafficking, and, and the toll that it's taking on our communities is, is really quite shocking these days. And, um, you know, I remember the days when I first started policing, we just didn't mm-hmm. hear about these kinds of things. And here we are today, we have shootings happening every day. We have gangs shooting it out whenever they come across each other, wherever they happen to be, whether it's in a popular shopping mall, it could be in the entertainment district, it could be anywhere. And um, the, the real the real concerning part to me is is just how how they are today in terms of carrying their firearms with them. They're, they're all carrying, they're all packing, and they, they don't even hesitate if they see even a suspected rival gang member to pull out their firearms and start shooting. So it, it's a real public safety issue. You know, at the beginning of that conversation, and it was some time ago, and we're still having it, is why do they feel that way? Why do they feel so confident? Why aren't they more nervous like they were perhaps decades ago? And we get down to what kind of reaction, what kind of responsibility they have to take. What are, What is the outcome of them using guns? And people put pressure on and say, we don't do enough. And actually, to tell you the truth, it was such a focus. Talk shows like this, we were all over this 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Then things went quiet. Look, we have other things to talk about. But many people may be surprised that they are still flourishing here. You know, what do you think the problem is? Why are they doing it? Because they wouldn't do it if they feared it. 
Yeah, for sure. And, you know, the, the problem is, is complex and would take hours to even, mm-hmm. you know, start to, to pull back some of the layers of, you know, the the issues that, that are, are, are the foundation and the formation of street gangs. But, um, you know, if, you, if you're just talking from a law enforcement perspective, it, it certainly is a resource challenge. The police services are strapped with resources just trying to answer calls for service every day, let alone, you know, have these kinds of sophisticated projects mm-hmm. that take, you know, perhaps a year or two to culminate. And then now after the project is done, uh, you know, there's still all of the court and all of the evidence and, and all of that ahead that could go on for years. What's the impact immediately? Here's the good news. Um, a major violent street gang has been dismantled successfully. Mm-hmm. And it, that, that impact will be felt. Um, what's unknown at this point is for how long. You know, and when you say dismantled, does that mean, you know, cauterized? <laughs> how well, uh, how much have they been annihilated here? Well, I mean, let, let's say that their operations have, at least for now, been shut down. All there, right. well said. Well, there'd be very few of them left, right? And, you know, with, with over 100 arrests, that's a, that's a pretty, pretty good-sized gang. That's a lot of people. But, you know what, the problem with gangs is there's always somebody right there in, in the background, in the shadows, waiting to step in and and pick up where the others have left off, whether during an arrest or the age out of gang activity or whatever. So the, the root cause of the gang activity is, is at heart, the heart of the issue. Um, the challenges for law enforcement today to enforce the laws and, and you know, to get into the communities and, and protect the communities themselves from, from these gangs is, is a real challenge. But, you know, we're going to have to see what happens during these COVID times. My, my guess is mm-hmm. a lot of these guys are going to get get bailed almost immediately. A lot of them are going to be back on the streets pretty quickly unless they've already got some very serious bails in front of them. And even even in cases like that, and especially during COVID, we're seeing that, uh, you know, the courts are letting them out pretty quickly. So if that happens, uh, they'll pick up where they left off. They're not going to pay attention to their bails. They don't care. They're, they're not going to stop their activity. They'll just pick up where they left off. So we'll see how long the impact is, is felt. Yeah, we got impacts all over the place, and crime and what we have to do between health and juggling crime is something we just don't know how bad it's going to get. You know, as we're talking about gangs, I always, you know, I grew up in Hamilton, and we had gangs in Hamilton a long time ago when other people didn't have gangs. And so when I came to Toronto, and then there were Toronto gangs that started, it really has been an evolving story. And as you just mentioned, the neighborhoods, are we learning more about what works and what doesn't work in the outreach in the neighborhoods? Because it's so many people are victims of this and whole neighborhoods can be victims of it. And even some of the gang members, I mean, you know, there are methods, I guess, to get in and and take away the urge to join a gang. I remember reading a psychological report a long time ago. It was fascinating how people felt they were family and yes. they protected each other. And it gave you a whole different perspective. Are we getting better at it, do you think, Dave? Well, we're talking about it a lot more. I'm just mm-hmm. not sure we're getting better at it. And, you know, quite frankly, a lot of it's been thrown at the feet of the police to be the the first, the one, the only to get in there and to, to make significant change. And I can tell you, police officers are approaching this much differently than they they used to. I mean, it used to be straight enforcement, which I still believe in. Enforcement is a very important part of curtailing gang gang activity. But I can tell you there's an awful lot more um, police presence from more of a social approach, neighborhood approach, intelligence-led approach, where, where the police are trying to get into these neighborhoods to build relationships, even with the gang members, 
and to you know see if if we could at least mine out of all of that information you know some kind of a, a methodology whereby you know we as a society can offer the youth of these communities some kind of an alternative to turning to street gangs but i can tell you that's a very powerful draw i i, I was doing mm-hmm. this kind of work with, mm-hmm. way back when street gangs were just starting to truly form and, and get organized and uh, in a in a young person's mind a lot of times they idolize you know their their older brothers or the, mm-hmm. the older men in the neighborhood who you know, flash the guns, flash the cash, have lots of women around them. You know, it's that it's that whole gang culture lifestyle, and and they grow up idolizing that. And and unfortunately, that's the goal that they're reaching for. At, at a very young age, at ten, eleven, twelve years old, you you can imagine who some of us that you know didn't grow up with with some of these challenges, who we might have idolized. And it, it wasn't criminals, it wasn't gang members, but unfortunately. They're so prevalent. Uh, a lot of young people, this is what they grew up seeing and idolizing. And therefore, at a very young age, 13, 14, they're entering into these gangs. How connected are they into American gangs? You know, you hear the word Crips and you know that word. Is is there a connection or is it just a, are they emulating? No, there's, well, there's a bit of both. I mean, they're certainly connected to the, the cross-boarding trafficking of firearms is is all about that connection piece. So there's lots of that going on. Some gangs have affiliate, you know, names and, and affiliate gangs on both sides of the border. Um, but, uh, you know, the the challenging part is that they used to be more focused and centralized within small neighborhoods. And it was about that, you know, feeling of belonging and connection and protection and all of these things. And, and they weren't all that mobile. Today, it's completely changed. A gang from Toronto could have tentacles into the east coast of Canada, the west coast of Canada, the trickle effect down into the United States and trafficking in, in humans, drugs, uh, guns, all of these kinds of things. And that clearly this case is yet another example of, you know, how organized and sophisticated they are. They're, they're not any longer just that neighborhood street gang, you know, again, about protection and, and uh, you know, having firearms to protect their neighborhood. These are organized and it's, it's organized crime. It's about controlling the streets and the drug trafficking and so on and and making a living out of this. And, you know, you can see by the amount of drugs and the cash and the firearms and the weaponry that was seized in, in this particular project, this is quite a level of sophistication. It is, you know, I guess uh, I guess we should be concerned. Just one more thing to worry about. We can go back to the old. This is the old worry machine that we used to have as we looked at the cities in Canada and whether or not they're being infiltrated. But you're right. Good news and the dismantling of this. Dave Perry, it was great to have you. 640 Toronto crime expert, CEO of Investigative Solutions Network. That's it for the podcast today. You can hear On Point live on the radio Monday through Friday, 630 to 10 p.m. I'm Arlene Bynum for Alex Pearson.